HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is the newly renamed What Doesn't Kill You show with your host, Katie Kiefer. That would be me. And uh, my apologies for being a little bit late. Um, My guest on the phone today is Paul Shapiro, the Vice President uh, for Farm Animal Protection for the Humane Society of the United States. Uh, Mr. Shapiro's work has helped enact farm animal protection laws in California, Arizona, Michigan, Maine, Colorado, Oregon, and Ohio. He's also worked with dozens of companies, including some of the world's top retailers, to improve animal welfare in their supply chains. Um, thanks so much for joining me. I'm sorry to keep you waiting, Paul. How are you? Katie, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Oh my God, it's a pl- total pleasure. Um, so um, I just wanted to, um, basically this show is kind of, I think you guys were looking to uh, respond to an article that I wrote or a blog post that I wrote in the Huffington Post um, where I described the intense paranoia of the meat industry. Uh, as regards to the activities of the Humane Society, Mercy for Animals, PETA, and various other animal welfare um, organizations. So um, I was really struck um, by uh, sort of the polarization of your two sides, uh, your side being one and and the meat industry being the other. When I talked to Emily Meredith on this program, who is the... um, communications director for the Animal Agricultural Alliance. And um, and she really got me thinking because um, I don't think she actually used the word terrorist, but as I was going back to do some research to write the article, I, I saw the literature um, that it, that is published by the Livestock Ag Sector, of which I am an avid consumer, I have to tell you. I read MeetingPlace.com, Drover's Cattle Network, um, you know, Meat and Poultry News. <laughs> I mean, I'm really a kind of a geek on this stuff. Um, but they refer to you guys often as terrorists, um, which I thought was really over the top, and largely due to your undercover video work. What do you? What did you make of that description? I'm sure you've seen it yourself. Uh, well, first, Katie, you and I are in a very small, venerable club of people who avidly read the meat industry trade press. So <laughs> let me uh, let me say it's great to be with a fellow comrade on that. 
But, I mean, look, obviously it's insulting to the victims of actual terrorism to call people who merely videotape other people abusing animals terrorists. That's an absurd characterization and one that shows the real poverty of their argument rather than defending the indefensible practices of um, industrial animal agribusiness. They just want to shoot the messenger with those type of ad hominem unjustifiable attacks. Yeah, I, 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 I have to say I concur with you there, but it, it kind of shows you what a corner they have painted themselves into um, by having to use words like that uh, in regards to undercover videos. And, and that, <clears throat> that brings me to my next point and what we're going to talk a lot about is the, what they call, what we call ag gag, what they call the new farm protection bills, um, many of which are being introduced or passed as we speak in many new states. Um, what, what do you think the industry can do <clears throat> that would assure consumers that animal welfare is being respected once these laws are enacted and organizations like yours can no longer take the risk of doing undercover work in animal ag operations? I think it's important to point out what some of the industry's standard practices are right now because it's not just a matter of a few rotten eggs or a few bad apples. We really are talking about standard routine meat industry practices that are just rotten. They're just completely indefensible. Like and what? so well, for example, the pork industry as a matter of routine course locks breeding pigs, these five hundred pound social intelligent creatures inside of two-foot-wide cages. They can't even turn around for essentially their entire lives. These animals are locked in a state of virtual immobilization, mm-hmm. lined up like parked cars, and then left there to languish, really, for virtually years on end. And when that is your standard practice, it takes a lot more than just words to assure the public that you're treating your animals well. It takes action. It takes actually... Uh, changing your practices so that the animals who you're using are suffering less. And so there's really nothing that the meat industry can do with words in order to assure people that it's uh, treating animals well. What we need are reforms, and instead of implementing the type of animal welfare reforms that would be supported by so much of our society, the meat industry's response to this need is just to try to prevent people from finding out about the abuses that are taking place by passing these laws that would make it a crime merely to take a photograph of what's happening on a farm. When they call them farm protection bills, what they mean are bills that suppress whistleblowers on these facilities, whether they be animal cruelty whistleblowers, food safety whistleblowers, or more. Well, I'm going to jump ahead here because according to um, my contact at the Animal Agriculture Alliance, uh, Miss Emily Meredith, who's an excellent interview, by the way, um, she said that the reason that they need they need these um, farm protection bills is that the undercover videos harm farm communities by giving them bad publicity and thus uh, reducing um, the amount of meat that people will buy presumably, uh, for the nanosecond that they remembered that something bad happened. Um, Do you think that that is a legitimate concern, that farm communities are harmed by these videos? Well, you have to keep in mind that farm communities are not monolithic. There are many farmers who oppose these standard industry practices, Mm -hmm. like immobilizing animals in cages where they can barely move an inch their entire lives. At the same time, Sure, if you are engaged in cruelty to animals that is so severe that if people found out about it, they wouldn't want to buy your product, the answer to that isn't to try to make it impossible for people to find out about it. The answer to it 
is to change. And that's what groups like the Animal Agriculture Alliance really should recognize, is that it's not just a communications problem for them. This is a problem where normal practices have become cruel and inhumane as a matter of standard course. Again, not just a few rotten eggs, but routine practices within the meat, egg, and dairy industries. And so the industry wants to uh, make people feel better about um, the practices that they're engaged in. They shouldn't be trying to criminalize whistleblowers. Rather, they should be trying to pass laws that ban the many of the standard practices and give an equal playing field to all farmers so that they won't feel compelled to cut corners by um, using these extreme confinement practices. Do you find, I mean, the pigs are an extreme example of that. I think, um, what do you think about the other indust- the other livestock a- sectors, poultry and um, and cattle? It seems like me, as an outsider, cattle has come a long way since, say, the 80s and 90s even, uh, in terms well, of adopting beef, better practices. Yeah, beef, beef cattle are certainly treated better than most other farm animals, mm-hmm. and they really always have been. It's not to suggest that there aren't animal welfare concerns within the beef industry. Certainly there are. However, when you compare it, let's say, to the egg industry, we've got hundreds of millions of laying hens in our country, nearly all of whom are confined in what are known as battery cages. Mm-hmm. These are small wire mesh cages that are so cramped that the birds can barely even move an inch. They're unable to spread their wings. Mm-hmm. Each bird has less than a single sheet of paper on which to live for more than a year before she's slaughtered. It really is difficult to imagine a more miserable existence, and yet more than 9 out of 10 egg cartons that you find in supermarkets across the country come from birds who are locked in that type of an, uh, state of extreme immobilization. So again, this is an industry-wide practice. More than 9 out of 10 eggs consumed in our country come from birds who were in cages where they were unable even to spread their wings. This is an example of an industry that is just so cruel, that is so extreme, that it is just out of step with mainstream American values about how animals ought to be treated. But do you think, I mean, the argument always comes back to economics here, and it always comes back to like, well, it costs more to raise animals outside, or, you know, we don't have the space for this. I mean, there are a million different reasons why animals are raised in confinement. Do you think consumers, if they were more aware of what was happening, would be willing to dig a little deeper into their pockets to give that much more money to the monolithic companies that are doing this? Or do you think that's just, uh, you know, do you think that the company will just pocket the extra and continue Mm -hmm. to do what they're doing? I mean, it's hard to say how we could exert enough pressure on these industries as consumers um, to enforce some kind of change. I think that the answer is that if consumers were aware of how, just how horribly farm animals are treated, they would be very, very outraged. And so, It's not just a matter of consumers being unfamiliar with how animals are being raised. This is the result of a purposeful deception campaign perpetrated by the meat, egg, and dairy industries to mislead consumers about how animals are treated. How many times have you gone to the supermarket and looked at an egg carton and seen pastoral images of bucolic farms with chickens in a barnyard and a little red barn in the back, in the background? Yet the chances are nearly are nearly certain that those eggs were laid by birds who are not in a barnyard. They were not even just in a barn. They were in a warehouse locked inside of a cage, never to see the sun, never to eat a blade of grass, never even to spread their wings. 
So you can't necessarily blame consumers for being unfamiliar with how farm animals are treated when we see these these misleading ad campaigns. Just to give one more example, Katie, think about the infamous Happy Cows commercials from California where you see cows enjoying their lives in lush green pastures when in reality most California dairy cows never step foot on a blade of grass in their entire life. They they live on barren dirt feedlots and they have a very barren existence. So the meat industry, the egg industry, the dairy industry, these are industries that are very accomplished at not only coming up with very inhumane ways to treat animals, but also with ways to deceive consumers about that inhumane treatment. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking about that one. And while I'm thinking about it, I'm going to bring up one of the, the um, points that the animal agriculture industry brings about you guys and using these undercover videos and why they call it the Farm Protection Bill. Uh, the sort of key feature of these new farm protection bills is to enforce reporting abuse within a 24 to 48 hour period rather than persisting in filming something so that you can demonstrate um, uh, an institutionalized way of treating animals. And so, and they also object to the airing of these videos to news organizations or the internet rather than reporting it directly to their management to be addressed. So do you think they have a fair uh, concern there or do you think that because of what they do, there's just no option but to do what you're doing or were doing until the Farm Protection Bill started to be passed? You know, look, food safety and animal cruelty investigations often require weeks of evidence gathering to build the cases, just as we would never force police to turn over all evidence acquired on the first day of an investigation. Food safety and animal welfare whistleblowers shouldn't be forced to blow their cover and do do that either. There's a reason why all of the animal protection groups oppose these bills, while the only ones who support them are the meat industry. They may be drafted to appear like they're animal protection measures, and in reality, it's intended just to blow the whistle on whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. What they want to do is prevent any pattern of abuse from being established and to end any expose, really, before it can even get started in earnest. That's why the meat industry is so desperate to pass these bills, because they don't want anybody to look behind the veil to see how animals are so routinely mistreated on factory farms and in slaughter plants. Yeah, I mean, to me, this, you know, their, their tin ear towards public relations is so disastrous that, I, you know, as a former you know, public relations consultant, I'm just struck over and over again by how stupid they are. <laughs> I mean, I don't need to make light of the of the issue, but I mean, yeah. it just is mind blowing. No, I mean, in a way, I think it's true. This issue is, has largely backfired for them. Nearly yeah. all of these bills that they have advanced have failed, and they have generated lots of negative press attention for themselves. Where the news is is airing the footage that they want to keep suppressed because the news is wondering, well, what do these folks have to hide? Exactly. When you're engaged in an activity that is so heinous that you want to make it a crime for somebody to take a photo of it or a crime for a journalist to air it, you know you're doing something serious and that you have so much to hide. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things, we're actually, you know what, Joe, let, Paul, we're going to take a short 30-second uh, sponsor drop, and then we'll come right back with Paul Shapiro, Vice President of Farm Animal Protection for the Humane Society of the United States. Um, just let's run this little clip, and then, I mean, this little commercial, and then we'll be right back with Paul. Thank you. Change is coming. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery. Thank you for listening to this show. 
In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. For more information, visit Kane5.com. Hi, we're back. It's, um, this is um, What Doesn't Kill You with Katie Kiefer. That's me. And my guest on the phone is Paul Shapiro, the Vice President of Farm Animal Protection for the Humane Society of the United States. Paul, thanks again for taking some time out of your Sunday, especially on Easter. I really appreciate it. Um, my pleasure. I really, I have so many things to ask you about, but I think we're going to like push ahead to um, something else, which um, again, all of these questions are based on things that I either hear from people in the meat industry or I have read in their publications. Um, and, you know, it really, it just shocks me so much that they uh, have such a, you know, kind of blinders on I me. Mean, it's, it's really, it's remarkable. But anyway, I have also heard and read from various sources in the livestock industry that the goal of organizations such as yours is to eliminate the livestock industry. In other words, to make everyone go vegetarian. Is that true? Is that what you're trying to do? <laughs> well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, Katie, first and foremost, this is what we hear time and time again in response to bills that would, for example, require that farm animals merely be able to turn around and extend their limbs. So when you're arguing about a gestation crave bill and the opponents of the bill say, hey, if we pass this, the next step is to make everybody into a vegan, think about it. <laughs> How does allowing a pig to turn around ensure that people will become vegan or make it, I mean, it, it's really, you know, it's a, it's a real question I think is best posed to the uh, proponents of that argument. However, let me address it directly. Sure. The Humane Society of the United States is a big tent organization. It's comprised of vegetarians and meat eaters alike. What we all agree on is that these standard factory farming practices, like, immo- like immobilizing animals in cages where they can barely move an inch for their entire lives, are cruel they're inhumane, and they need to be phased out. So wherever you are on that spectrum, whether you are a diehard vegetarian or a diehard carnivore, we should all be able to agree that farm animals ought not be subjected to these cruel and inhumane practices. And that is what the organization is really all about, having a big tent that welcomes everybody who wants to build a more humane society. And that's what we're going to keep on doing, because it doesn't matter really where you are on that, on that spectrum with regard to these questions of whether animals should be able to engage in basic movement. Right. Well, the thing that um, I'm just thinking now, listening to you, I'm thinking to myself, if I were in the meat industry, I would be doing everything I could to market how well I raise my animals to encourage, and I think that would encourage people to eat more meat, frankly, because we are basically a nation of carnivores here. I mean, it, that's been demonstrated and it's not going anywhere you know, nobody is stopping eating meat. People who want, don't want to eat meat haven't been eating meat for years. So nothing big right. is changing. I think, that, I think you're right. The rate of vegetarianism has remained approximately the same for the last three decades in the United States. Yeah. And about five, it's been about, about 5% of the population um, never eats meat. Uh, and then what you do see rising are the number of these so-called flexitarians, people who eat meat, but they don't eat it all the time. And this is the real reason why uh, meat per capita meat consumption in the United States in the last five years has actually declined by about 12%. This is the first time since World War II that we have seen a per capita consumption decline in meat Mm -hmm. consumption in the U.S. 
And um, there are a number of theories as to why Americans are cutting back on the meat they're eating, not necessarily becoming vegetarians, but they're cutting back um, a lot for public health reasons, some for animal welfare, some for the environment, some even for spiritual reasons. But what's clear is that this uh, decline in per capita consumption is coming about from people reducing their meat consumption, not necessarily eliminating their meat consumption. Mm. I wonder, does those figures take into account um, the number of people who are buying from CSAs or from uh, companies like Heritage Foods USA, um, where they're sort of guaranteed that the animals are raised in humane conditions? I mean, there are a lot of companies that are branding themselves as animal welfare approved or certified humane. And I think that that's having an impact on commodity uh, livestock. Do you think that that's true or is that too small a percentage to even matter in this in this equation? Um, well, I certainly think that you're right that there is a uh, an, an increasing interest in seeking out these high animal welfare products and um, things like animal welfare approved and so on are growing. They still are probably less than 1% of the total animal products market, but they're growing and they need to be considered for sure. Um, the statistics are from USDA and they look at really the, the broad span of things in, in the United States. And so I do think that it may be the case that um, that uh, products that are represent less than 1% of the market may not be factored in there. But one theory, and I've talked to people like Bill Nyman, who is the founder of Nyman Ranch, his, his argument is basically that people should eat less meat and that they should eat better meat. And so his argument essentially is that, yeah, people should seek out these high animal welfare products and they're going to be more expensive, and that means that you may eat less meat overall, but it'll be better for you, better for animals, and better for the environment. And so when a cattle rancher like Bill Nyman is making that argument, I think you know that it's got legs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, look at the empire that he built. I mean, um, yep. the Nyman Ranch uh, conglomerate is, is a very formidable aspect of the marketplace in terms of progressive uh, practices. Um, I want right. to move on for just a second, though, and talk a little bit about you, because you've mentioned gestation crates quite a bit, and one of the greatest successes that you've had, uh, looking at your website, has been has had to do with having uh, companies like Burger King and, and uh, Bon Appetit Management and various other catering and institutional food companies um, d- pledge to eliminate pork f- that has been raised in gestation crates. But the window is so huge. I'm kind of wondering why it takes so long for them to phase out something like a gestation crate. Why is that so such an enormous economic burden on them? You're right, Katie. It is a very long time frame, and it is for some of them. You mentioned Bon Appetit. Actually, their time frame is only until 2015, so there's about two more years before their policy takes mm-hmm. full effect. But other ones, like McDonald's, have a longer time frame. Um, yeah, some of them closer. go to 2017. Right, yeah. So, for example, Smithfield has a policy where they're going to get rid of gestation crates on their company-owned farms by 2017, so mm-hmm. essentially four years from now. And the reason why they do that, now, I mean, keep in mind, we wish that these changes would happen today. They're not even today. We wish they would have happened yesterday. Right. Um, but... There is a lot of capital investment in these type of systems, and the companies that are phasing them out want to depreciate those investments that they've made. And that's one reason why it's taking them so long, because when you build, let's say you built a gestation crate facility 
um, five years ago, you probably were not expecting to stop using them five years hence. You're expecting right. to maybe convert out of them maybe 20 years hence. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the reason why they're taking longer is to depreciate this so they can make it a more affordable transition for themselves. Some companies are moving a bit faster, but all of them are multi-year phase-outs. Um, essentially, you can't move mountains in minutes, and I wish they would move faster. We encourage them to move faster regularly. I do think that some of them will ultimately move significantly faster. But um, in the end, it's going to take some time. Gestation crates didn't arrive as an industry norm overnight, and they're not going to phase out into the sunset overnight either. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, that, that totally makes sense to me. I mean, I think, you know, these, I think people tend to forget how, just how large these companies are. And, uh, you know, with any big ship, it takes a while to turn it. And um, mm-hmm. as long as they're moving in the right direction, I guess we can deal with that. What do you think about, Temple Grandin is often uh, somebody who proposes a third-party audited uh, video, you know, 24-7 video stream um, in packing plants uh, as a very effective tool to discourage animal abuse and also to, you know, ensure food safety protocols are being followed. What do you think about that proposal? I think it's, it can be a useful supplement to eyes on the ground as well. You know, these... Um, Video cameras are not going to be helpful in addressing the institutionalized abuses, such as practices like gestation crates or battery cages, and you have them either or you don't. However, in terms of sadistic abuse of animals, people beating animals, kicking them, dragging them, prodding them, and so on, um, I think the videos can be a helpful supplemental tool. They're not necessarily a panacea just because there are so many opportunities for abuse in this supply chain that even if you take one slaughter plant, I mean, there will probably need to be dozens of cameras uh, for the different angles that could hit every place where a live animal is located. And so you want to make sure then that you have dozens of people watching all of the screens, and it can be very difficult. So in short, I think it's a useful supplement, but not necessarily a panacea, and certainly not a replacement for eyes on the ground from inspectors. Well, there's been a lot of talk. Um, we're going to unfortunately wrap this up pretty soon. But one of the things I'm sure you've been on top of is the uh, is the talk in the poultry industry of increasing the chain speed from 175 birds per minute, or from 145 birds per minute to 175 and upwards. Um, <laughs> which, you know, birds per minute. I mean, I'm just thinking like I can't even blink that fast. You know, so clearly that's going to increase. I mean, I think one of the culprits in animal abuse issues, um, certainly on the on the ground level, on the level of, of, of actual processors, people working in plants, is this increased, ever-increasing chain speed. And the cha- why, what I mean by that, for people who aren't aware, is that the animals are, you know, slaughtered and then they go up on a rail, actually, and it's literally a chain speed, and they have, like, a certain number of animals that have to be killed every minute. Um I interviewed a wonderful author uh, about a year ago named Timothy Pachirat, who you may or may not know of, who wrote a book called Every 12 Seconds. That was He was an undercover operator in a slaughter plant for nine months and wrote a really interesting book about it. Um, so if you haven't read it, you might want to. Um, <laughs> but um, he he pointed out, and, and this is really true, is that it's really all about the chain speed and that that seems to encourage... Um, you know, people to overlook uh, instances of abuse because, you know, stopping the chain to get a worker out or off of the floor or whatever uh, slows down production and that therefore slows down the economics and then they don't make as much money because they haven't slaughtered as many animals. So I think in a way 
some of these practices have to go right back to that, that sort of bottom line of the company. And, you know, how do you compensate them for losing the number of animals they would lose if they slowed down their chain speed? Sure. Well, on the specific issue of poultry slaughter, I think that the way to to reform the system would be to ensure that no live conscious birds are being shackled at all. So as you indicated, Katie, the way that it happens now is that live birds are dumped out of transport crates, workers shackle them upside down, the birds are dragged through a vat of electrified water, which really renders them immobile but not necessarily unconscious, and they have their throats cut. And for the birds who miss the blade, the throat-cutting blade, the next step is basically to get dumped into a tank of scalding hot water that's designed to loosen feathers, and that's where they would drown. So it's a horrific um, pra- uh, process for these animals. And when you increase the speeds, then you increase the risk that you could have more animal welfare problems, certainly more worker welfare problems. Definitely. And so the way to reform this system isn't necessarily about the line speed, but rather about the way, what type of system the birds are slaughtered in. So, for example, there's a method known as controlled atmosphere killing, which is an alternative to the current method of so-called electric stunning. In controlled atmosphere killing, the birds, while in their transport crates, are put into a chamber where inert gases like argon or nitrogen are used essentially to render them to sleep. And argon and, and nitrogen and other inert gases are shown to be non-aversive to the birds. They just fall asleep. And then they're dumped out, and their lifeless bodies are then hung upside down, and they go through the, pre- through the slaughter process. Right. And the benefit for the birds is obvious, because they're not having their threads cut while they're fully conscious and so on. Right. However, the benefit for the workers is also substantial, because instead of, trying, instead of hanging birds who are kicking, screaming, biting, birds who are literally fighting for their lives, they can work with lifeless birds, and it becomes a much better uh, process for both the bird and the worker. Fascinating, Paul. Thank you. Um, We have to wrap this up, but uh, I want to ask you one more question, which is how much do you guys actually get to work with livestock ag um, on these issues? Do you find them at all receptive or is it just so polarized that nobody can talk to anybody and nothing will ever change? Well, our goal always with political opponents of ours is not to bring them to their knees, but to bring them to their senses. (laughs) And What we do is work with them when we can. So, for example, the United Egg Producers, the main trade association for the egg industry, was a mortal enemy of ours for years. Yeah. Eventually, though, in 2011, we sat down and we started talking about what we, may, what we may find in common. And we found that we had a lot not in common, but we actually found a couple things that we did have on common ground. And we are now working together, jointly lobbying the Congress to enact the same piece of hen protection legislation that both sides want. Now, it's a modest law, but it's one that would uh, provide significant improvement in animal welfare for hundreds of millions of egg-laying hens in all 50 states. And to see the Egg Industries Trade Association and the Humane Society of the United States working jointly in the halls of Congress to enact the same piece of legislation is a model that animal welfare improvements don't always have to be confrontational. Sometimes they can be cooperational, and that's exactly what we're seeing here, cooperation on an important animal welfare issue. I think it's a model for other industries. Unfortunately, the biggest resistance to this legislation 
has been from the meat industry, because the meat industry thinks, well, if you give egg-laying hens anti-cruelty protections, the next thing you know, pigs and cattle are going to have anti-cruelty protections. (laughs) And that would be terrible. (laughs) Right, exactly. So the meat industry is strongly lobbying against this legislation that the egg industry and the animal welfare groups are lobbying for. So time will tell uh, whether it gets enacted um, in this year or not. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Paul. Um, is there a website that you'd like to promote for people to go take a look at more for more information about um, you know, how to get involved or how to monitor practices or whatever it is you want to promote? Go right ahead. This is your opportunity. Uh, thanks, Katie. You can check out humanesociety.org. The Humane Society of the United States is the largest animal welfare organization in the country. We would love for you to check us out, learn more about our work, and hopefully support it as well. Again, humanesociety.org. Thanks a lot, Paul. And thank you to my sponsor, Kane Winery. And thanks to my engineer, Joe. And um, folks, I'm going to take the day off next week, so I won't have a guest, but I'll be back with another fantastic guest for What Doesn't Kill You. So don't forget, that's my new name, What Doesn't Kill You. Um, I haven't figured out the tagline yet. Maybe you'd like to write in and tell me what the tagline to that should be. But anyway, this has been a great episode. Thanks to my guest, uh, Paul Shapiro from the Humane Society of the United States, and I'll see you in a couple weeks. So long, folks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.